0: Today, the gospel passage is coming from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. So I invite you to stand as you're able in body or spirit in honor of a reading of the gospel passage. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippa, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Many of you know, but some of you may not know, that my first occupation was not ministry. My first occupation was education. I went to school to be a high school history teacher, and that's what I did for the most of my 20s. But then somewhere along the line, I got called into ministry, vocational ministry in my 30s, and that's where I find myself today on my journey of life. Um, My wife grew up a preacher's kid and told her mom that she's never going to marry a preacher. So she married a teacher, then became a preacher, so God has a sense of humor. Uh, She can't get away from church work, it looks like, but... You know, my life as a, as a vocational minister and being in the ministry has been a joyous one, but it also has had many challenges as well. And so in order to um, become a, a pastor, especially one that comes in mid-changing careers, they go through what's called in the Methodist Church, what I look at is like the alternate route, and that's called licensing school. So if you feel called to the ministry uh, and become a pastor, you can take the local License local pastor out, and they'll send you to licensing schools. So that's what I did. It's a, it's a semester crash course of how to be a preacher and hopefully not screw up your church. Okay, And once you go through that crash course, they give you a church. But then they say you've got to finish your theological education through the course of study program, which is a five-year program. Uh, That's over 20 courses, and you have to go to one of the uh, approved United Methodist seminaries. So for five years, I did most of my coursework through Candler, which is at Emory in Atlanta. And so many of you may not have known, but I would go and do a lot of work, correspondence work and online work at home. And then I would go travel the weekends and go to Atlanta. So I would leave early Friday morning, drive on over, be in class all day Friday, class all day Saturday, drive back Saturday night, and I was back here on Sunday morning. And so that was my schedule for many, many years. Um, And it was a lot of hard work, but I learned a lot, and I appreciated it, serving a church and going through that process, Uh, going to classes with other Methodist ministers from different conferences and just to get their perspectives on things. But along that way, um, COVID came, and as COVID came, it changed how we did church also changed how we did education so all my classes that would be in person were now on zoom so i would spend many nights and many saturdays sitting on eight-hour zoom classes which were no fun at all i will tell you that much i'd much rather been in person but one of my last classes that i took was a 500 level class it was a 5th year class and it was just simply called evangelism evangelism that was it no specific area of evangelism, nothing more to the description but just evangelism. So I didn't know exactly what I was walking into because when we all hear the word evangelism, there are certain things that just pop up in your mind depending on your background with evangelism, right? Some of you may think evangelism is standing on the street and shouting at people to get into church, all right? Or evangelism may be going and knocking on doors and inviting people to church, Or evangelism may be hosting an event at the church and inviting people to come for a potluck or a movie on the grounds or whatever. You have different ideas, uh, good or bad, about evangelism. So I didn't know what I was really walking into when I took this course. Uh, It was taught by a uh, a professor or instructor at the college, but he's also a minister as well. His name is uh, Reverend Dr. Winston Worrell. And he was quite the interesting guy. Older gentleman. He's been doing this for years. He taught many courses on evangelism. He's written a few things about it. And so one of the things that he would have us do, about 20 of us in class, we'd get on the computer, we'd log in and all that. And his first activity every time we got together was to present to us a scenario that you were walking into and then would ask us to say how we would respond in that scenario. So... One example would be, he'd, he'd get real elaborate too. He'd make it try to feel really real. he said one time Imagine that you're at the grocery store, okay? You're going, you got your list. You're on a mission. If you ever see me at Kroger, I'm on a mission. I'm not trying to ignore you, I'm just trying to get my list and get in and get out. Um, I usually try to pick the line that I think is going to move the fastest by, like, what they've got in their buggy and how they're handling their scanning or how the scanner's going. And then I try to pick the shortest one, and I feel really good if I did right. And if I pick the long one, I feel bad. But, you know, that happens. But you're at the store. You've got your list. He would say, you're in the line that you want to be in and all that. And you're just in your, you know, your Kroger shopping clothes, right? Sometimes you'll see me in flip-flops, a gym shirt and a T-shirt just running in the Kroger, right? So you've got a T-shirt on. Let's say you threw on a shirt that was from your church, a mission shirt or VBS shirt or a shirt that's uh, your theme for the year. But you've got your shirt on from your church. You're in line. You're not thinking about the people around you. And then someone comes up behind you and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you go to such and such church on such and such street? And you're going to tell them, yeah, I go there. And then they're going to say to you, well, I'm not in any church, and particularly I'm not quite fond of church, so why do you go to church? I guess you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? And so he would throw that scenario out there, and he'd say, okay, this is what's happened. you got 30 seconds to tell this person why you're a Christian before the lady starts scanning your items and asking for your Kroger card. All right, you got 30 seconds to tell her why you're a Christian. Go. And so he get on this computer screen and break us off to little breakout groups with other pastors, and then we had to tell the other ones real quick in small groups why we're a Christian. That's a heavy question. We're Christians. Most of us, when we come to church, we know we do what we do. We're Christians. We know that. But we've gotten so used to just going through it and doing the motions and all that we never really think, why am I doing this? And if someone who's not a believer or someone's had a bad experience, Wants to know why I'm a Christian and why I go to that church, what's my answer going to be? You know? It's something to think about. It's real heavy. And if for us pastors, you know, we try to get too theological with all that. We're like, we, gotta, we just got to say, plainly, why are we a Christian? Why, why do we do what we do? Why do we believe what we believe and follow Jesus Christ? And so today, when I see this scene here of Jesus with his disciples, I think of the moment too of like, hey, what if someone says to you, well, who is Jesus? You go to church, you're a Christian, but can you tell me who is Jesus? And if you go to the streets now and ask those random strangers who Jesus is, you'll probably get an array of answers, right? From the believers saying that he was the lamb, the sacrifice that was sent down to die for our sins, so we didn't have to pay the price. You'll have some say he was half God half uh, human. You'll have some say, well, he's just a historical figure with good teachings, but I don't believe anything more than just that. And you'll say, you have some say, he doesn't exist at all. You'll get an array of answers when you go to the streets and say, who is Jesus? And so here in the Gospel of Matthew, the whole month of August, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. You know, we started out hearing about the feeding of the 5,000. Then the next Sunday, we saw Jesus walk on water. Last week, we heard about Jesus healing the Canaanites. Uh, woman's daughter. Now we're having Jesus, just does seem like a normal scene, traveling through Caesarea Philippa. And he just stops his disciples and says, who do people say the son of man is? Like, hey, wait a minute. Who do people say the son of man is? And it's interesting he used the word son of man. Some translations will translate to the human one. The human one. Who do people say the human one is? That's important because he's asking his disciples, who do people say that Jesus the human is? He's half human, half divine. But he's saying, what's the general public? What's the word out there on say, Jesus the human one? Who do they say I am? Okay. Now, their responses are quite interesting. Their responses are saying, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah. Maybe one of the other prophets. But he's asking them, okay, great. That's who they say who the human Jesus is that they know out there. But what do you say? Who do you say I am to his followers? And remember, his followers have been with him in the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing the woman's daughter. Before this... Jesus had another mass feeding. If you read scriptures before this, he feeds the 4,000. There's two feeding stories in the Gospels. And they are directed towards different groups of individuals to uh, clearly proclaim a message here. When he fed the 5,000, that was clearly people who knew of Jesus, probably followed Jesus, probably had a Jewish background. But the 4,000 that we kind of skipped over here, but the feeding of the 4,000 was strictly Gentiles. Okay? Those that did not grow up Jewish, but yet Jesus came and fed them to show his disciples that he's come for the whole entire world. Not just the Jewish people, but for the whole entire world. So they've seen all these miracles. They've heard a lot of the preachings. Okay, But yet he said, okay, what do the people say who I am? Then what do you say who I am? Who is Jesus? Who am I? Who is Jesus? Jesus. Well, here we go. We have Simon Peter. He's the one that is quoted speaking of Matthew highlights Simon a lot, Simon Peter, for many reasons, but it's because he probably represents a lot of us. He represents probably the the things we're thinking and want to say, or probably would have said if we were there with Jesus. Okay? So he was the first one to speak up. And he says, You are the Messiah. The son of the living God. He didn't say just the son of man. You're the son of the living God, the Messiah. Now, this is not the first time that Peter or the disciples proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and son of the living God. They did it when they were in the boat during the storm when Jesus was walking on water. And when he calmed the seas and rescued Peter, they worshipped him. But in that moment, they had just seen a lot of miracles and they are probably scared. And so that was probably just a celebratory moment of like, yay, we're safe, you are the Messiah, you saved us, you're the Son of God. But now they're just walking around in this scene, going through a town. And Jesus is like, okay, there's nothing that's really big happening. Let me quiz them again. Let me see if they really are getting this, if they're beginning to see who I am, who I really am, not just as the world sees me, but as those who have been following me see me. And so, yes, and Peter said, you are the Son of the living God, you are the Messiah. And so Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. This is not just something that Peter could have gotten on his own. It had it been revealed to him and the disciples as a gift from God. When we see these things that Jesus does, when we feel and experience Jesus as becoming a gift from God, we couldn't do it on our own, but with the help of our Creator. And so there he says, Yes, you are blessed, Because you have not been revealed this through your own doings, but through our heavenly Father. And so he says, I tell you, you are Peter. See, name changes in Scripture. When he goes from Simon to Peter, which means rock, something's just transformed in that individual. There's a a pivot and change in this story now. Jesus is telling him, you're getting us. You're starting to get this. Now, he doesn't have it 100% because if you read later on, Peter does something that frustrates Jesus and he says, get behind me, Satan, which means the opposer. So Peter messes up again down the road, but he's still starting to get it. But the name change symbolizes a change within someone. Something's changing in the story. Something's changing in that individual. They'll be known for that. It's going to be known as the rock. And that's what Jesus says. And this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Now, There's some different thoughts out there within the the Christian theology world of, of this phrase, this saying, of what it means that you're going to be Peter and you're going to be called rock and you're going to be the rock in which I build my church. Our Catholic friends believe that now the church will be built literally upon Peter and that every leader of the church comes from Peter. So the popes like to trace their lineage all the way from current pope to Peter and they take a translation of that. A lot of Protestants have a different viewpoint on what Jesus is saying here. He says, yes, Peter, you got it right. Your faith and testimony in me is what I will build my church on. That will be the rock. Your faith in me and your testimony is the rock on which I will build my church on. And then for everybody else that proclaims my name will be connected in this moment to me and what I have done. And I will build my church upon their faith and their testimony Faith and testimony would be the rock upon which the church would be built. The faith and testimony of the faithful. It started with Peter, but it continues through every Christian, not just a pope, but every Christian that proclaims the name. That Jesus is Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And not only proclaims it, but lives it out in a way for the world to see. See, it's good to know the geography of of this place that they're in. Because in this town, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and having this dialogue, church tradition says he is standing in front of a cave in this community that is actually called the Gates of Hades. And it's still there today. You can point and look at it. So many people believe, and tradition states he is saying this in front of this cave that's known as the Gate of Hades because then he says, after I build my church, And then the gates of Hades, which is standing behind me, this dark cave that reeks of sulfur that no one wants to go in, that we believe is the gateway to Hades, not even this will prevail against the church. And so he's saying all this standing in front of that, driving home the point that it's your testimony and your faith and not even death or evil can overcome it. Then he continues on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I, you know, I don't know about y'all. I look out in the congregation and behind me, I think most of, of us are old enough to drive, okay? Old enough to drive. And some of us may even remember the moment that mom and dad or whoever gave us the keys to the car so that we can drive by ourselves for the very first time. And the feeling that we had when we got the keys to the car and we could go to school by ourselves, go to the football game, go to our jobs, go to the parking lot at the store and hang out with our friends, go cruising down the boulevard and all the things that we wanted to do. We got the keys and it was a a mixed feeling of excitement, anxiety, but man, freedom. I remember the first time I could drive by myself that radio has never been so loud before, but man, I cranked her up and we cruised, and I went on. And I remember when I went to—I think I worked—and I remember going to my job from Madison to Jackson and coming home. And I remember I got lost, but I said I'm not going to tell my parents. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get home on time, and I just had to figure it out. But it was still fun. It was freedom. And it was exciting to have the keys to a car. And yet on the flip side of it all, I'm sure my parents were just dying and worried to death. Just as many of you parents are out there are probably worried to death the first time you gave the keys to your kids and you weren't in the car with them. You're like, oh, I hope they just get back. I just hope you're watching the clock and you're timing in your head. It should take them this long to get here. They're going to be there for that long and they should be back by this time. I remember my parents told me, hey, when you have kids that start driving, you'll never go to bed until they're home. And I was like, and I always tell them, you don't have to wait up for me, I'll be fine. And they're like, you'll understand one day. You're gonna to want to wait up until they get home. But getting the keys to the car is freedom, it's a privilege. Well, when we read this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. A lot of folks have this idea of St. Peter at the pearly gates with the keys, letting in the who needs to be let in and not letting in who doesn't need to be let in. You know, some of my favorite uh, drawings out there are the ones that Marshall Ramsey does of when a notable person passes away and he memorializes them in a way that just symbolizes the goodness of their life. It's a sad moment, but it's also a very interesting moment to see those cartoons driven. It's always at the gates of the Peter and the keys. But here, this is something different. What Jesus is trying to tell us is like, I'm giving you the car keys to the church. I'm giving you the keys and the ability and the authority to bound and loose, which means to teach and to testify in my name. You have that privilege. And I know God and Jesus are probably like, we're giving it to Peter and all these humans, but we're going to have faith in them. We'll give them grace from when they wrecked the car. But they give the keys To those who proclaim that he's the Messiah and son of the living God. To have the authority to go out and to testify and to proclaim and to live a life that honors God. To continue the ministry that Jesus did with his disciples. We have the authority and ability and privilege to do that. And what that looks like for the church is different. For each church is called to do differently but just to lift up what we do here in our local church. Yesterday, with Rise Against Hunger, we packed over 22,000 meals. We had money left over that we gave to the organization that will buy $300,000 worth of medication for countries in Africa. Our hands are the last hands to touch those meals before they go out to natural disasters like out in Hawaii, go out to third world countries like in Africa and Haiti, and go to war and torn countries like in Ukraine. We are continuing the ministry of Christ by feeding those in need when we come together and pack those meals. We are healing individuals through medications just as Christ healed, as we have the keys to do so. That is us as a church living out the faith and testimony of Jesus Christ. And we have many more opportunities as a church to do that between now and Christmas. We can provide gifts for kids in need in Honduras in this month in September coming up. October, We're going to sell chickens, and it's going to be really good, but that money's going to be used to send our mission team to Honduras to provide medical care and build houses, do vacation Bible school, build relationships, continuing the work of Jesus. Then November, we'll collect stuffing for Madcap for Thanksgiving meals for the needy, and then we have birthday gift for Christ in December. We have many things that we can do to live out the testimony of Jesus Christ right here in this local church. That's what we are called to do. But not only that, We're also called in our own personal lives to live a life, to share in our faith to those, even those as we wait in line at the grocery store. We may not have to say anything to them, but just how we treat them. They know that we're caring, loving people. And in that, too, we are sharing in the mission of Christ. We are holding the keys. And it also is to tell each and every one of you that you are valuable and that you're worthy for the mission. Peter screwed up a lot. He denied Christ three times. But yet, Jesus still believed in him and came to him after his resurrection. We can never mess up too much for Christ. He gives us second chances when we're willing. And so I think today's passage should encourage us and motivate us in our own lives and as a local church to find ways to live out our faith, to live out our testimony. Because we are worthy And because the world desperately needs to feel the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.